Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do though, in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time to fess up. <laughs> it's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard? of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there <laughs> is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Darkcast Network. Where the light shines brightest on our indie podcast. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
Welcome to Fruit Loops. Bienvenidos, bitches, and buiti binafi. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about serial killers of color and the victims. Uh, however, we are on a little break. And in the meantime, we wanted to share a true crime goodie with you from one of our pod pals on the Darkcast Network. What's this episode about today, Beth? Well, this week we present an episode from our pod pals, Aurora and Angelina of Murder, Murder News. Murder, Murder News presents the latest breaking true crime news, moments from murder history, killer memes, TV recommendations, book reviews, and all things spooky. Well, all right, here we go. Enjoy! Hello, fruities. We are Aurora and Angelina from Murder, Murder News. MMN is a true crime podcast that tells stories of murder, missing persons, and survivors from marginalized communities which never get enough attention from the media or law enforcement. We always try to frame our episodes from a victim-first standpoint, avoiding any glorification of serial killers and sensational storytelling. Angelina and I are also longtime fruities, and we're truly honored to be able to use the Fruit Loops platform today to talk about a cold case that could really use your attention. We want to say thanks to everyone from this amazing community for taking time out of your day to help us solve this one. And we want to give a big thank you to Wendy and Beth, the queens of true crime, for helping us get more web sleuths on the case. We will be sharing a murder from a previous episode that has definitely not gotten enough attention from the media, because as you already know, the news is racist, allegedly. If you like our show, come check out our other episodes at Murder Murder News. to another Friday at the MMN Commune. We, of course, are the true crime cult with all of the baby goats and none of the icky brainwashing. Mm -hmm. And we are back with another story that made murder history. But before we dig in, we'll introduce ourselves in case you don't know us already. I'm Angelina, and I'm here with my freaky friend, Aurora. How are you, friend? I'm doing great. Hello, true crime friends. And before we get into it, uh, we just wanted to give a little shout out to our new friend, Michelle. Michelle just joined us on Patreon, and we are so happy to have you. Uh, welcome to the cult. Welcome to the cult, Michelle. Here's a little hand clap <laughs> for you. Woo! <laughs> that is welcome. not synchronized at all, but we, we love you. There's our love. <laughs> if you like Michelle need more MMN and you want to join us on all of our exclusive episodes and all of the cool events we have to offer, you definitely want to follow us on Patreon. So you can go find us at patreon.com slash murder murder news. And you can pledge any amount you like to get a shout out on the show, just like Michelle did today. And uh, we are so happy to have uh, all of you join us. So please, please find us, join us. We can hang out with you. Yes. We can, you know, we'll chat hang about out. murder. There's some free merch in it mm -hmm. for you if you join us. And we have mm -hmm. some exclusive content just for our Patreon. So go check yeah. us out on Patreon. 
All right. We're going to start off the day with some true crime headlines of the week. And oof, both of these that we have are a little rough. I'm really sorry. I think I was in a dark mood when I was researching it. And they both (laughs) involve small children. Um, So if that is a trigger for you, I totally understand. Go ahead and skip forward a couple of minutes and join us for our main story because these are rough. So the first one is um, that this past week in true crime, 40-year-old Matthew Taylor Coleman, a father from Santa Barbara, murdered his two children in Rosarito, Mexico. And this story kind of came to my attention because I used to live in Rosarito. And actually, Angelina had sent this story to Mm -hmm. me and was like, have you heard about this? Isn't this where you used to live? And yes, and it is terrible. This is a real Mm -hmm. wild one. So according to investigators, Matthew was deep into conspiracy theories such as QAnon and believes the world is secretly run by lizard people, which is a super harmful one. I think that's probably two of the worst ones to believe in. Um, So because of those beliefs, he thought his wife was possessed with serpent DNA and had passed it on to his children. So on August 7th, Matthew took off with his 10-month-old daughter, and two-year-old son from Santa Barbara, California to drive down to Rosarito, which is, I don't know, maybe like a five or six hour drive down to just mm-hmm. past the border of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And early on the morning of August 9th, Matthew took his children to a nearby ranch where he stabbed them repeatedly with a fishing spear. And his wife at this point is frantically mm-hmm. calling the police, trying to track him down. She knows something is wrong. She didn't suspect it at first, but now they've been gone so long she's worried. Uh, mm-hmm. And police did find the bodies of his children uh, who did die at the stabbing later that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one's super disturbing. And like you say, the um, those beliefs are so harmful. And I think a lot of people don't take it seriously enough when it comes to QAnon or especially things like the lizard people. I mean, it sounds silly on the surface, but when you dig into it, you can find how deeply harmful these beliefs are and how like racist and just violent they can become. And obviously, I mean, if this guy was motivated to kill his children based on his beliefs, like they are not just innocent, funny, um, you know, what a quirky dude believes in this stuff, you know, like it's very, very detrimental. So it's a, ugh, very it's really sad. messed up and how sad, like a 10 month old and a two year old. It's just too much. Yeah. In other tragic news, 21 year old Florida mother, Shamaya Lynn was shot to death by her toddler during a zoom call. According to witnesses, Shamaya just fell back and her nose was bleeding. They heard a loud noise. They saw she was bleeding. And so her coworkers called 911 and her boyfriend came home shortly thereafter. But Shamaya did not survive the shooting. And it appears the gun was unlocked and had belonged to her boyfriend, who was the toddler's father. Yeah, this one is really just so sad and tragic, like obviously an accident that the toddler was able to find a gun. It's obviously Mm -hmm. so dangerous to have guns in a house with children ever, um, especially not locked up. So like how terrible that, you know, this kid is going to have to live with this for the rest of his life. Like he had, she also had two kids. The sibling was there and saw his mom die as well. Like it's just really terrible. 
That is super terrible. And I can't imagine how it would feel to be on a Zoom call with someone and see something like that go down and you like you you're fully aware of it, but you can't do really anything to help in the moment, which is terrible. Yeah. I mean, they called 911, but that's all they could do. And, uh, you know, the again, it's like uh, the gun laws um, are not sufficient to protect people, in my opinion, but the gun laws and, and rules like surrounding gun ownership do advise that you do keep it locked and unloaded and things like that. When the gun laws are not sufficient enough to begin with, and then you don't even follow the ones that are there, it's extra dangerous. So you got to definitely be diligent with the uh, any guns in the house, which like you say, are dangerous to have, period. And I would never own one. I don't believe in, I don't believe it helps you <laughs> in any capacity. Yeah. And also something to mention, an article I had read on this story, um, a police officer in Florida did mention that this is something the police department offers for free, like locks for guns, um, mm. which was surprising to me. And I'm not sure if that's like a state by state thing or how that's mm -hmm. done. But if you do own a gun, please, please, please go seek that information and see if that's yeah. an option because um, this could have been prevented definitely. And it's so sad. Yeah. yeah. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. <laughs> As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Now, before we get into our story, we just want to say that while our tone is light in the intro, we do take the topics we're discussing very seriously. We are best buds and we love chatting together every week and turning it into a podcast. We want to share that passion with you and to create a vibe where all of you feel like our best buds too. We joke about us friends forming a cult or commune, but that's not to diminish the severity of actual cult activity, which we do occasionally talk about in our weekly stories. We feel it's important to open up and talk about even the darkest aspects of humanity and the downright scary things that come up in the news. But we want to make it clear that our intention is never to sensationalize, and we always try to deliver these stories with respect to all parties involved or affected by the crimes we discuss. We always post our sources in the episode description so you can do some digging on your own if a story we present piques your interest. But you should know that if you ever feel we get it wrong, either in our tone or in the details of the case, we want to hear about it. We are more than happy to make a correction or give an update on a case we've discussed in previous episodes. So feel free to reach out to us at murdermurdernews at gmail.com. Okay, well, um, now we're going to kind of shift to our big story of the day, um, this day in true crime history. And I do want to offer a content warning for this one, um, possible burning death. We're not going to get too much into detail on that because um, this case is actually a cold case, so we're not entirely sure 
what did happen. But if you are particularly sensitive to that topic, you may want to skip this one and listen to one of our other episodes instead. Mm-hmm. So today in true crime history, five teenage boys came up missing from Newark, New Jersey, and are now known as the Missing Clinton Avenue Five. And our sources for today are our wonderful friend, Stephen Pacheco at Trace Evidence Pod. Angelina, I don't know if you remember Stephen from the Forensic Files 2 event that we went to right before uh, the world fell apart in New York City. Is he one of the ones that went out with us? Uh, He, I don't remember if he came out for drinks because... Um, I don't remember anything before COVID, honestly. <laughs> it's <laughs> rest, all a blur. Happiness does not life. exist. <laughs> yeah, so I can't much. remember, but I do know that we met Stephen there and that we became um, like at least social media friends with Stephen that night. And his show is fantastic. It's He's won um, uh, like awards for it at podcast awards and such. And it's very... Uh, like story driven and it's no, it's no banter. So if you're the kind of person who doesn't like the chit chat and stuff, it's all research driven. So it's a really nice. good show to go check out. Again, that's called Trace Evidence. Um, we also use nj.com for newjersey.com. Uh, True Crime Stories, the blog, the Charlie Project blog, the New York Times and more. And as always, we will link all of our sources in our show notes. So, Uh, Today, in true crime history, on August 20th, 1978, five friends got together to play basketball at the Westside Park on Clinton Avenue in New Jersey, in Newark. And 16-year-old Randy Johnson, 16-year-old Michael McDowell, 17-year-old Melvin Pittman, 17-year-old Ernest Taylor, and 16-year-old Alvin Taylor were all close friends, and they all knew 25-year-old handyman Lee Evans. They had spoken to Lee earlier in the day, and the five boys had agreed to help him move some boxes later in that day uh, just as a payment because he was a handyman and kind of did odd jobs and such. So they all went home for dinner and then met up with Lee later that evening. And a witness saw three of the boys riding in the back of Lee's green Chevy pickup truck that night. And Lee has never denied meeting up with them. He has always been quite transparent about the fact that they did come move the boxes for him and that he saw them that night. So according to Lee, the boys came to help him and then he dropped them off at Clinton Avenue and Fabian Place around 11 p.m. that night and they were never seen again. I do want to know that we prefer to take a victim for a stance on our stories Uh, We like to try to give some back information about the victims or a survivor, Mm -hmm. if it should be um, somebody that is a survivor. But because this case is older, Mm -hmm. it didn't get a lot of media attention at the time because like they'd like to say at the Fruit Loops pod, the news is racist, allegedly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, we love you so much, (laughs) Wendy. Mm -hmm. You're amazing. And because many of their family members are now deceased, we weren't able to find a lot of information about who the boys really were. So I'm terribly sorry about that. Um, We would love to paint a better picture about who they were and what their family life was like and such. If anyone listening knows anything that they can add to that, we'd love to hear about it too. Because yeah, like you say, if it's hard for us to find in our research, then, uh, you know, Any notes you have, we'd love to hear just for our own knowledge. (laughs) Absolutely. So their parents reported them missing, but people were initially uncooperative and treated the boys as runaways. 
Their families all insisted that they were not the kinds of kids to run away. They were all good kids. They'd never been in any real trouble. And all but one of them went to high school together. Without police cooperation, some family members conducted their own searches, literally driving around town and calling out for the missing kids. A couple of days after their disappearances, one of the boys' moms received a phone call from someone who claimed he knew where they were and would tell her for $750. Of course, this was the 70s, and we had to do this thing called a phone trace, which in movies, it seemed like the police would all sit around the phone with a family member and try and keep them on the phone for as long as possible, while a team of technicians tried to rush to determine the location. The call was traced to a payphone at Union Station in Washington, D.C. Supposedly, police went there to investigate, but by the time they arrived, the caller was gone. I'm not sure exactly what this means because the distance between Newark and D.C. is about a four-hour drive, so let's hope they sent police from D.C. to the phone booth. Nonetheless, this person was not found in time, and the call remains a mystery to this day. A couple of points about the phone call are that at this time in the investigation, the story had not yet broken since the police believed the kids were runaways. That means the likelihood of the call being a prank call is very low, and whoever made the call must have known what was happening. That means the call could have been made from a kidnapper, it could have been someone close to the families, or if the boys did run away, it's possible they had run to D.C. and made the phone call in an attempt to get money from the family. That doesn't make a ton of sense since four hours is a bit of a drive. And why wouldn't they have made this plan while they were still in town? The first suspect investigators identified was Lee Evans for the obvious reason that he was the last person to see the boys the night they disappeared. At the time of the initial investigation, it was stated that Lee was given a polygraph. Some sources say maybe even several polygraphs and passed. Since he passed the polygraph test and there was absolutely no evidence of where the boys could be, the case basically just went cold. Family members of the boys, along with the police, believe that Lee had something to do with their disappearance, but there seemed to be nothing anybody could do about it. And I do want to make a side note um, that in the Trace Evidence podcast, Stephen mentions that there might have been information that came out later that the that there was never actually a polygraph test given. Uh. Um I could not find that information in my research, and I I did read quite a few trial notes and such. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's possible that is true and that the police were just saying it to brush it off. I got to say either way, like the more time goes on, the less faith I have in polygraph tests at all, because there's so many factors that could skew the results. And I don't think that that's enough to dismiss someone, but I also don't think it's enough to um, say someone's a suspect. Like, I think that's just... They should retire that process, yeah, just like they have many. Point. Yeah, it's very outdated. It's it it doesn't. I don't think it's helpful. Ugh. A very good point, and we'll kind of get into like why this didn't go anywhere, even with the polygraph test. But um, yeah. I think that the police were kind of still keeping it alive, like throughout the years, even with the polygraph test, and they all kind of thought it was him. But we'll get into yeah. the lack of evidence and stuff coming up here in a second. Well, I, I'm sure you'll cover this, but just I have to say that a an adult like that hanging out with younger teens is like always kind of (laughs) sketchy. So it's definitely sketchy. And I think the deal is, is that, 
you're right. Like 25 hanging out with like 16 and 17 year old boys is That's weird. weird. And mm-hmm. like 25 is still very young, but like, I yeah. feel like a 10 year age gap when you're that young is bigger than like a 25 year old hanging out with a 35 year old or something. Yes. So that is a very good point. It's definitely weird and um, very weird. <laughs> <laughs> So processing evidence was, of course, tricky during the 70s since we didn't have things like DNA testing and all the cool stuff that's on forensic files. Um, So there's not a lot of like tests and things they could do. And investigators were following the social security numbers of the boys in case they just popped up and applied for jobs or something using their social security numbers. They did not have fingerprints for any of them on file since fingerprinting children was not something we did in the 70s unless they had been in some kind of trouble and none of them had ever been arrested. So they just did not have that on file. As the case sat cold and the years passed, family members had donated their DNA just in case any of the boys' remains were ever found or if they suddenly popped up in jail or a morgue or somewhere where their DNA was uh, captured and used which must have been really overwhelming for a family to have to process, but they were holding on to any glimmer of hope that they could. In 1996, investigators called in psychic Dorothy Allison, who had assisted police in hundreds of investigations. She was known for helping find a missing child named Michael Kersix, who had been murdered in Clifton, New Jersey, and she was also featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Dorothy reported having seen teeth in the ground in a five-acre field just west of the New Jersey Turnpike, near Interstate 78 and Route 22. Dorothy believed the boys had been burned after being killed and been buried somewhere in this spot. She reported having seen a piece of clothing, like a plaid shirt or a rag. Dorothy took police to the place she had seen in her vision, and a search was done of the area, but it kind of sounds like they were digging somewhat random holes and they just kind of called off the search to continue interviewing witnesses. The thing that might stand out as interesting about Dorothy's vision is that she believed the boys had been burned and that there had been an incredibly high number of fires in abandoned buildings in 1978. According to the True Crime Discussions blog, there were reportedly 2,600 fires in abandoned buildings in 1978 alone. That's a bit of a ep- epidemic. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't cite their source on that blog. Mm, okay. That number just sounds astounding to me. Yes. Like 260 would be a lot, but 2,000. In abandoned buildings, like right. specifically. Right. And I'm not sure if that was um, people without houses trying to keep mm. warm. Like, I'm not quite sure what those circumstances were mm, or if it I was see. arson or, you know, like what exactly was going on, why there right. would be so many fires. Mm-hmm. So next on the timeline, in 2008, 30 years after the boys disappeared, Lee Evans' cousin, Philander Hampton, confessed to his role in the boys' murders, or at least what he claims to be their murders. But just wait, because this story is not nearly over. Philander was in jail at the time for unrelated charges, and we were unable to find what the charges were for. We really did a lot of digging and background checks. And there are quite a few uh, small charges listed on Philander's record for like driving and minor drug things and such. But um, I couldn't find anything that would have been a big enough charge on his record um, to want to trade this information. But nonetheless, 
Uh, we do know that he traded his confession for a reduced prison term. Mm. And the prison term ag- initially agreed upon was 10 years. Though from what I understand, it was drastically reduced as they kept talking. So mm. whatever that confession was for, the prison term must have been more than 10 years. Um, but the confession was already starting off on shaky ground since he's making the trade for this. Mm. So let's get into his confession. According to Philander, the motive for the murders was that the boys had allegedly stolen marijuana from Lee. And there's a lot of conflicting information about how drugs may have been involved in the case, with some sources saying that Lee was selling marijuana and the boys were helping sell it. Witnesses at Lee's trial said the boys had broken into Lee's house and stolen a pound of marijuana. There was a mention that the boys' parents confirmed that they did have marijuana in their rooms when they disappeared. Um, I haven't actually physically seen those sources, but if their parents did actually say that, it sounded like it was an, it was just for personal use. Like it's not like they had a ton sitting around in the room with an intent to right. sell sort of thing. And I mean, come on, mm. they're teenage boys. So no surprise. Who they, doesn't have marijuana? <laughs> exactly. Like yeah. I uh, do for my dog. Right. <laughs> I'm not a smoker, <laughs> your, but your I do have CBD for my dog. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it really helps his anxiety. I agree. I mean, I, I that's just why I use it. Well, one of the many reasons, but yeah. So investigators do believe that if Lee Evans was really involved in the murders, that drugs had something to do with the motive. So there's probably something to this. Or at least that's what they think, I guess. (laughs) Right. On that night, Lee allegedly asked for help from Philander and the other cousin, Maurice Woody Olds, who died of natural causes in 2008. The men allegedly brought the two boys to an abandoned house on the 200 block of Camden Street. Philander held the boys at gunpoint while Lee went to get the other three. He came back with the other three boys 45 minutes later and brought them all up to a third floor closet. He pushed them into a two by four closet and Philander said that he then nailed it shut with a six inch nail and poured gasoline throughout the house. He asked Philander if he had a match and he said he didn't, but Lee knew he was a smoker and waited for him to hand him one. And then he burned the kids alive in the house. Investigators did search the house where the boys were allegedly burned, but they did not find any bone fragments or remains. This left investigators with no evidence and just the testimony of Philander, who, again, was trading his confession for a reduced prison sentence. Police also offered Philander $15,000 for his confession to help him relocate after he served his sentence. This is another practice that I wish they would retire. You know, it's like exchanging, like even plea bargains are like honestly misused and abused in so many ways. And it lets so many gross people go free. And then, yeah, trading money for things like that is really disturbing too. Really disturbing. And like if this guy is a a person of color, it's like he would assume that while he's being accused of something, he might just go to jail for it anyway. So of course he could easily be talked into you know, doing something to reduce the sentence. It's so strange. And when I was looking up Philander's background check, his uh, arrest history, part of me couldn't help but think uh, this is, he is black. He's a black man. uh, That A lot of this is because he is being racially profiled and pulled over all the time. So it's like, you know, they, like, People are trying to say that like he's not a reliable witness and whatever because, because of all of these. Because he has a criminal these. history. Yeah. Yeah. Not that hard to acquire one in that case. Right. <laughs> exactly. So um, definitely everybody keep that in mind too, that um, 
you know, certainly in Newark, New Jersey in the 70s, uh, mm-hmm. in a largely black community with mostly white cops, there's a lot of racism going on here in general Absolutely. anyways. Mm-hmm. So let's talk more about Lee Evans. Lee has always maintained his innocence, but both Lee and Philander were charged with the boys' murders in 2010. And Lee has blamed the charges on corrupt Essex County officials that had conspired to bring him down and said that his arrest was time to give Newark Mayor Cory Booker a boost in his run-up to re-election. The mayor denied that allegation. Yikes. Lee represented himself in trial, which if you listen to our last week's episode, we kind of think that feels a little suspicious when somebody mm-hmm. wants to represent themselves. Mm-hmm. In this case, he apparently made the correct choice because the jury actually acquitted him after four days of deliberation. Wow, this might be the guy that every creep thinks they are when they try to represent themselves. <laughs> exactly. Just very, very um, convincing. Yeah, very convincing. Um, and... You know, it's important to point out that the jury did deliberate for four days and there was a lot of back and forth mm-hmm. and they felt like they had reasonable doubt on his guilt. And that reason mm-hmm. was there was literally no evidence of what happened to the boys. Um, so, you know, there mm-hmm. there's no DNA, there's no bone fragments at the burn site. Nobody ever saw them. There's just absolutely nothing. Wow. They disappeared in the thin air. So everything in trial was pretty much relying on the testimony of Philander. And the jury found him to be a bit unreliable. As we mentioned, they did bring up all the charges against him. Um, so that's, you know, I, that's kind of a little sketchy too, why they would consider him to be unreliable. Um, Mm. But there were some other witnesses uh, that did come forward to kind of implicate Lee as well at trial, but apparently it just wasn't enough to convict or to convince the jury. So, um, and part of it was they didn't believe that the five boys would fit into such a small closet. And they didn't think that one nail would be enough (laughs) to prevent him from, for all these kids from breaking out of the closet while the house was still burning down. You know, like, yeah, you'd be doing everything you could to get out. Yeah, it's actually such a strange story that it almost sounds like um, how someone would tell a story on purpose to make it sound, you know, uh, incredible and be like, you know, this guy's giving a confession, but it sounds fucking weird as hell. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I agree. And that does sound kind of unbelievable. Um, Mm. And uh, Stephen mentions in his podcast that depending on how much space theoretically they had to move around in a closet, maybe they were so cramped that they couldn't get enough momentum and force to bust a door down. If they were that cramped together in sort of a pile, you would think that then when they burned, you would find some evidence. Yeah, absolutely. But- yeah, there's definitely some big questions about the story being told. I could see why the jury would be like, wait, that doesn't make sense. You know, I, mm-hmm. I can absolutely see that. Um, why they would be skeptical. Mm-hmm. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, 
painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Still, those closest to the case believe that Lee is guilty. Alvin's mother, Floria McDowell said at the time, I think he will get his just due sooner or later. It may not be now, but it will come back to haunt him. The man knows what he's done. End quote. All of the living family members of the boys believe Lee was involved, and they were all sobbing and hugging each other for comfort in the courtroom when the verdict was read. We could not find any information about how much time Philander served for his plea, But as of this day, the families of Randy, Michael, Melvin, Ernest, and Alvin have still not received closure for their missing kids 43 years later. We do want to touch on the topic of other theories as to what could have happened to the boys, but there honestly aren't a lot of realistic possibilities. It is possible that all five boys decided to pick up and leave home together. It was certainly easier to pick up and leave and start a new life in the 70s. This theory is a bit hard to believe since all of their families clearly care so much and have fought to get justice for them. It just feels like at least one of the boys would have showed up on someone's radar at some point. Of course, the boys could have been randomly abducted from someone else that night, but there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Um, And that is the unsolved mystery of the Clinton Avenue Five. Yeah, it's really such a mystery. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in hearing about it, I couldn't help but think like one other possibility is that Lee and Philander were involved and it was just something more horrific that he didn't want to be honest about. And like maybe like trafficking. Yeah, it could be Mm -hmm. trafficking. Um, Mm -hmm. Who knows? Like, but they could have done something even worse to the boys and they just didn't want to be honest about the truth. Yeah, I don't know. When you hear about that many boys and really zero trace, um, I would assume it would be something bigger like trafficking or something gang related. But if the boys were not like 
that type and didn't have any evidence of being involved in any sort of gang stuff, then I would eliminate that, you know? Yeah. And it sounds like they were all very good kids. They did well in school and whatever. So the gang thing doesn't quite make sense. But then like, I also like think that the psychic thing is interesting because, um, you know, I have like mixed feelings about psychics. I definitely believe that psychics are real. And Mm -hmm. this lady that uh, they brought in, and the little kid that she helped find, it was pretty incredible. It happened in New mm-hmm. Jersey and reading the story, she had a vision of him being in a tunnel or like some hmm. kind of like water tunnel okay. sort of pipe thing. I don't know, like a sewage thing. I don't know what I'm saying. Um, like a storm drainy kind of thing. Something mm-hmm. like that. And he had his hands behind his back and she had like a vision of it and she went to the police with it. And they found him there. Like that's, they found him and like she was correct. And wow. it sounds like, you know, um, so that's amazing. she was kind of tuned in and I definitely think that some psychics are real and I think people can have visions oh, yeah. and, oh, you yeah. know, I don't know. So yeah, I believe in that as you know, I've said in earlier episodes, like I believe that it's a real thing, but I do believe unfortunately that a lot of people misrepresent themselves and, you know, for, um, entertainment purposes or for money reasons. And that's probably true in most industries anyway. But of course, you know, most of the, a lot of the famous psychics you see on television, uh, are probably quacks, but I do think that there is a, some, uh, reality there. Like, some people that maybe don't exploit it and aren't yeah, so my prominent. Husband is definitely psychic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've told you the well, stories. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, um, is like the burning, um, did, did those guys before they were interviewed hear that the psychic had said that or did they just um, maybe coincidentally or like, is that is that part of the mystery where it's like they said burning after she said burning and they didn't hear of each other or? I'm sure that they would have heard because the psychic mm. was brought in in 1996 and oh, Lander okay. confessed in 2008. Oh, so yeah, okay. if he wanted the information, he would have had access to it because there were mm. big articles written about it in 1996. I was able to find like a New York Times article written about it. So it was like definitely publicized at the time. So mm. it's possible he knew, but also like it's possible that there was some kind of burning associated with it. Maybe not in that house, you know, like who knows? Mm. And that's what the psychic saw. It just saw. sounds more, it sounds more like a coaxed con- confession to me when, um, yeah. you know, he's saying exactly what she said. That's uh, wild. But, but uh, he would have thought he would have said it's in that field and they brought them out to that field. He would have just gone with it. But I guess it. since they didn't find anything, I don't know. Well, like The deal knows? is they stopped digging in the field because they ran out of money. And I'm like... You know, I don't know what Mm -hmm. the use of cadaver dogs, I guess in the 90s, they probably kind of knew what they were doing, cadaver dogs and such. Um, Oh, yeah. But it had already been 30 years. So how much of their remains would have been still there 30 years later? I don't know what decomposition would be like in bones in ground in 30 years. Oh, it would be very heavily decomposed because, yeah, even some people who are found uh, weeks or months later are too heavily decomposed depending on how they how their bodies are left, right? Right. So, and they would have been burned. It's so like that would have yeah. you know, added to the damage. So I feel like they would have, you know, like how much would have been left for uh, anybody to discover? We don't know. Oh, geez. Just like, unfortunately, I feel like the vast majority of cases like this, um, missing persons cases are also just like unsolved murder cases. It's like, Authorities are in just such a rush to close things and be done with it um, that, you know, they don't take the extra time to backtrack or to to linger somewhere a little longer, which would probably make a big difference. Right. Absolutely. So what have you been watching this week? 
Um, you know, I have not been watching anything. I just oh. moved to Slovakia. Mm. <laughs> I'm, so I'm how here. are things in Slovakia? <laughs> um, it's a really interesting place. And That's... I'm learning a little <laughs> bit about Slovakian history. I actually want to spend some more time researching it since I used up my you know, like weekend reading time coming uh, researching this story. Yeah. But um, basically for those of you who don't even know where it is, cause I wouldn't have known mm. where it was if I wasn't living in Hungary, which is a country adjacent to it. But, yeah. um, this is a very rough, uh, history. That's probably not factual that I've sort oh, of wow. picked up from talking okay. to people, Let's but Hungary was owned for like hundreds of years or Slovakia was part of Hungary for hundreds of years. I don't quite know why it was taken away from Hungary, but mm-hmm. Hungary has been too powerful and broken up like many times. And like, it used to be very vast. And around the time of the Ottoman empire, it was very powerful. And then um, people were worried about the amount of influence they had. So it kept getting broken up into smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. And so then Slovakia was part of the Czech Republic for a long time. But then um, I'm not sure when, I I think like the Czech, like Slovakia has only been its own country for roughly 20 years. I was told from one of my Hungarian friends. Um, And and I say all of this, and I'm really sorry, I probably got a lot of facts there wrong. And I'm really sorry if you're from Slovakia and like screaming <laughs> at us right now, like, what is she saying? We've been in country for longer. I don't know. Please but, educate us on Slovakia. We have no clue. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where it is either. I mean, I, know, I roughly know, but I couldn't pick out exactly where any of these Eastern European countries are, you know? Right. I'm now an expert on the Eastern European map, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, like I didn't, I didn't expect to find myself here, but here we are. Um, but anyway, so like because of that, they've had their culture stripped. They were completely devastated Mm -hmm. by world war two. And I went to a, um, a museum over the weekend that touches on the uprising against the Soviet empire, like during world war two. And they had a big stand against the Nazis and Mm. um, they did some really like brave, incredible things, at least like told from Slovakian history. Of course, you always have to take that with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was, it was really interesting learning about it, but they've just had their country burned to the ground and rebuilt and burned to the ground so many times. And I think it's really affected the sense of culture here. So um, it feels a little like sad, you know, like mm-hmm. there's all these like bad things that have happened. And um, so it's not the friendliest place I've ever been to. Sorry, Slovakians. I love People you. People are a but... little rough around <laughs> the edges. It's a little rough. And, yeah. um, and my mm. friend had uh, come up to join me from Hungary over the weekend. And she keeps telling me how rude Hungarians are. And I think mm-hmm. they're some of the kindest most welcoming people I've ever met. Like I absolutely love living in Hungary. I would live in Budapest forever. I love it so much. But like, but after being here for the weekend, she's like, I take it back. Hungarians are so friendly. Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I guess it's all a matter of perspective, but I think it's funny um, when people talk about the reputations of certain peoples in, in regards to like, niceness or politeness um, to strangers. Cause it's like, I've lived in some of the quote unquote friendliest places, you know, like Canada is supposed to be known as like a very polite people and um, Newfoundland, uh, like Newfies are supposed to be the friendliest of the Canadians. And I kind of disagree with both in some respects, because I think that that um, vibe you get of friendliness from those people in Canada and in Newfoundland are, um, more passive aggressive, more sort of right. like backhanded compliments, like that sort of a vibe, you know? And it's like, uh, I feel like it can be misinterpreted, but I feel like it's, it's some of that, like, 
you know, when Southern people are like, bless your heart. And some people yes. might respond and be like, oh, thank you. Right. <laughs> but it's like, no, no, they're calling you a dummy. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's they not... hate you. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Bless your heart is definitely Texan for I hate you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds a lot sweeter, but don't be uh, <laughs> deceived. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's all I've been doing. But I actually am looking forward to a couple of shows that I will probably have seen by Friday. Um, first of all, awesome. the Nicole Kidman show is coming out this week. The Nine Perfect Strangers or oh, Nine yeah. whatever it's called. Nine, nine Perfect Strangers. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I think that, that comes out on like Tuesday or Wednesday. We're yeah. recording this early this week. Yeah. I think I thought it comes out this Friday, maybe even. I don't know. It could be maybe Friday. I saw a post on Nicole Kidman's Instagram mm-hmm. because I obviously follow her because I love her. Um, <laughs> yes. But yeah, it's coming out soon. So we will be talking about that soon. Oh, yeah. So I'm also looking forward to a show that is coming out, I believe, this week that our friend CJ at Beyond the Rainbow told us about. CJ is the most amazing human in the world. We love you, CJ. Yeah, and she's lovely. She's so great. And mm-hmm. she was con- uh, contacted by Netflix to do a review of a new documentary they have coming out, which we've never been contacted by Netflix. I can't even imagine yeah. I would die. Like, congratulations. Mm-hmm. So the show that um, that she was sent that she'll be covering on her podcast this week, if you all want to go hear information about it, especially if you're watching the Netflix documentary this week, um, it's mm-hmm. called Untold. And it tells the story of a boxer, Christy Martin, um, who was, I'm assuming, murdered. I haven't heard that much about it, but it's about her case specifically. And of course, CJ mm-hmm. covers uh, crimes of the LGBTQIA. Um, right. So it specifically focuses on that. So I'm definitely going to be listening to CJ's episode today, and I'm going mm-hmm. to watch that documentary this weekend. So if y'all are watching it, let us know what you think too, because it sounds really interesting. Yeah, cool. I actually watched a couple of things this week. I had a I guess a couple of times where uh, Louis was out playing gigs and I uh, was home and able to watch uh, more and more spooky stuff without being annoying. Um, so I uh, I watched that um, athlete A. Did mm. you did you hear about that? No. It was it's about the um, uh, USA gymnastics team um, scandal with that doctor. Um, did Did you hear about that? No. Okay, so oh yes, I did. This is about oh, yeah. Simone. Okay, yeah, I well, yeah, she was involved. Yes, but like there was a lot. There was actually, I think they said something like five hundred victims. Wow. So yeah, just really incredible. And the it's the doctor. He was um, sexually assaulting them. Well, like under the pretense of like doing some physiotherapy. Um, of course, it started in young childhood for a lot of them. So they didn't know the difference. They didn't realize that anything bad was being done to them. And then if they would relate things to each other, they were like, oh, okay, this is happening to everyone. I guess it's normal or whatever. And by the time they were sort of old enough to realize that something was amiss, most of them, of course, were aware of the culture of just victims not being listened to or believed or being criticized. And they just didn't want any part of that. Yeah. And, or that like your career could be taken down. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, that's what that's what really went on here when somebody finally did um, decide to come forward. Um, athlete A, the title person, um, she, of course, her career was ruined. And that's the thing. Um, it, there's a lot on the line. These are like potential or already sort of Olympic competing athletes. And I feel like that's a really gross aspect of this guy's abuse because there's definitely like a real 
power vibe, power and control vibe here because he um, he must have gotten some kind of extra sick kick out of doing things like this to people as as famous and powerful as a you know Olympic level athletes, right? Like so disgusting, so so gross. But the movie also just uncovers the fact that the whole the culture of um, at least in gymnastics um, and like Olympic level gymnastics, like um, the whole USA gymnastics team and like, um, you know, teams from other countries, any kind of crossover training, any different like special coaches that are, or trainers that they got involved, like the whole culture is disgusting. It seems like everybody is horribly like miserable. Everybody is abusive. Um, one really gross thing in the documentary was like they were talking about this um, this girl in the 90s. I don't remember what her name was, but there was a girl at the Olympics who um, she tried and sort of um, stumbled. And then they were like, oh, she's going to like maybe give it one more try. She looks like she's injured or whatever. And uh, then she was like sort of getting like psyching herself up and she went for it again and then she won. And everyone's reaction at the time was like, wow, what an amazing, powerful, brave, strong lady to like push through an injury and still succeed anyway. And um, in the documentary, they were sort of saying that's really not how it was. It was that she did it out of fear because these people were so abusive to her that she oh, could not no. refuse to try again, even though she was terribly injured. And that's like, so disgusting. Wow. That's yeah. so dangerous and terrifying. Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of, a lot of stories about that people competing on injuries and like, oh, I don't know, God. it's pretty amazing to watch, um, Olympic gymnasts and like to see what their bodies are capable of doing. But I mean, if the culture is so disgusting as that, and there's like downright criminal behavior going on, then like, I don't know. I don't I don't like any part That's of that. That's really so upsetting. Icky. And like, I mm-hmm. won't do anything if I have an upset stomach. Exactly. <laughs> like, if I, like if imagine I'm tired. a broken ankle. Fuck. Yeah. I, I can't yeah. imagine somebody making me do anything. Like Mm-mm. I would just die. I would just mm-hmm. die. Yeah, <laughs> like those poor exactly. Things. Oh, terrible. Yeah. So horrible, but I, I highly recommend it. It's very disturbing, but like um, really well done and interesting, eye-opening documentary. What's it on? Uh, it's on Netflix. I will be watching that for sure. So the other thing I watched was on Amazon Prime. It was it called uh, Catching a Serial Killer, Bruce MacArthur. And Bruce MacArthur was the guy from Toronto who, um, was killing gay men in the village. Did you hear about that? Oh yes. I have heard about that. I didn't know him by name, but yes. Yeah. This all happened. So I'm like mostly from Toronto. I lived in Toronto for most of my life and, um, this all went down. Um, well it started going down while I was in Toronto, but wasn't aware of it. And then once I moved away from Toronto, it started getting, um, to become more of a thing. And then like when the guy was caught and everything was while after I had moved to Montreal. So I remember it's one of those stories where I was just sort of hearing about it back home and was like, what the heck? What's really disturbing about um, that situation? I said he was killing gay men in the village. He also was a gay man himself, um, but one Mm -hmm. who like some of the others that he uh, hung around with or even murdered. Um, he was married to a woman previously and had children and Mm -hmm. lived in the suburbs. And then he just sort of you know, realized himself and moved to the city and and started living a different life. I'm not sure why he wanted to murder people so badly, but um, his uh, he basically 
fed his like hunger to kill people by going after people who were um, so marginalized that no one would notice or care, basically. Wow. And so aside from being gay people in the village, they were also immigrants, sometimes refugees, sometimes illegal immigrants. A lot of times people who didn't have any family in Toronto or in Canada. And um, what's really gross and scary about this movie is that um, they're talking about basically how the authorities failed to um, pursue certain Mm -hmm. things that they definitely should have. Like they talked to this guy, Bruce MacArthur, many times before they caught him and they um, they discounted him as a suspect many times because they just they didn't look hard enough. They didn't think hard enough. It's like some things were obvious connections that they were totally not paying any attention to. And they interviewed um, like the main police detective there. And uh, he kept constantly just like making excuses for why they didn't look at this or why they didn't look at that. And the excuses were all so disgusting, even right out of his mouth. He was saying, mm. well, this guy was about to be deported. So you know, <laughs> even though he was kind of missing and like he might have been murdered, I mean, you know, <laughs> we didn't really take another look or like they'd be like, well, this guy, I mean, he didn't even have any friends. So like, you know, <laughs> no pressure for us to figure out what happened to him. And it's just sort of like, ugh. But um, but yeah, I guess this guy, so Bruce MacArthur was also a landscaper and that's how he disposed of the bodies at his customers' homes in their landscaping. Wow. I, you mm. know, I know a little bit about that case, but I'm going to have to watch that because I only know like subtle details like about him being a landscaper and whatever, but that mm-hmm. sounds very upsetting. So yeah. what's that on? Uh, that's on, uh, it's on Amazon Prime or um, Super Channel. Okay. Mm. I'll have to watch that. Wow. Good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, one other show that is not quite true crime related, but uh, related to homophobia um, mm-hmm. that's on Netflix right now is Pray Away. Have you oh, I've seen... seen that there? I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, it's good. Um, I didn't quite finish the it's just like a, an hour and a half, I believe, like mm-hmm. kind of series. It's not a bunch of episodes. Um, mm-hmm. and I started to watch it last night, but I was exhausted and fell asleep at 930. <laughs> but it's really messed up and sad. If you're all not familiar with the concept, it talks about the rise of churches trying to um, like retrain people not to be gay and say that you can therapy, conversion therapy, like saying you can Mm. pray away the gay uh, Mm -hmm. starting in the eighties. And it's really disturbing. And so the deal is that like a lot of the people featured in it had been, had gone to Christianity during this time and Mm -hmm. they were gay and they knew they were gay and they they considered themselves reformed gays at the moment and they they mm-hmm. hated it you know like the mm-hmm. basically societal pressure was like you're going to go to hell and this and whatever and they kind of got pulled into this mindset that they could live a heteronormative life and have a family Ugh. with kids and then um many of them actually tried to get laws passed against the gay community one of the women in it was rallying for proposition 8 which if anybody's familiar with that in California um, they briefly Ugh. allowed gay marriage and then Proposition 8 took even more rights away from the gay community. And she was one of the people pushing for Proposition 8 to take those rights away. Oh, and now she's like, so disturbing. <laughs> what did I do? What did I do? And, yeah. you know, like really reflecting on the past and all the damage that she created. But it's it's really sad to watch and, mm-hmm. um, you know, fuck homophobia. And yeah. um, it's it's definitely a great documentary. I highly recommend it on Netflix. 
Yeah, well, that's a really interesting because I feel like, you know, just just hearing about it and thinking about it, I get the vibe that, you know, it. you're right, it's not a true crime story, but it could have become one in many circumstances, you know, right. because like in these situations, like, I don't know, that that kind of laying that kind of shame on people is not healthy in any way or constructive, you know, it's like trying to reform these um, queer people who are just like, fighting themselves with every fiber of their being. It's like, I don't know if those people, um, you know, they could lose their own lives. They could get to sort of pent up frustration and, and, and lose grip on reality or their mental health stability. There was a high rate of suicide for mm-hmm. sure. And they addressed mm-hmm. that. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's so messed up. It's like, you know, the gay community already struggles so much with self-identity and not being accepted. And then to mm-hmm. like push this unattainable standard, like to try to yeah. like train yourself not to be something you were born with mm-hmm. and to like keep trying and keep trying and keep trying to like resist like what you were born with. Like, it's just, it's just unimaginable. Like it's so upsetting. It's, it's really messed up. I can never wrap my head around it. Like I always say, you know, it's, it's the most natural thing in the world to be queer, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, honestly, like you say, you're, you're born like that, but also um, it happens all across the animal kingdom and every right. species. Like, it, <laughs> straightness is such a strange concept. And, like, I don't understand right. why it's even a conversation, let alone that we're trying to force ourselves and other people into this weird little box. It's weird because far fewer people are completely straight than, like, some yeah. level of queer. Right. That so, would be the minority, I would right, think. But, like, for sure. And I just feel like the more people are in, like, really truly in touch with themselves and understand the mm-hmm. idea that a sexuality is a spectrum, like, the more people are like, well, I'm not really completely straight. And, like, I think everybody, like, so many people yeah. have to have that realization at some point. And it's, I think it really is rare that somebody is 100% heterosexual. I think that's quite rare. I'm hungry for more spooky stuff, but we're we're not quite there yet. It feels like I'm already, like feel like we're already in spooky season, but it's just the beginning and some people are hesitant. It's like the people that get angry about the pumpkin spice lattes too early. It definitely feels like that to me. Like I'm, I'm ready yeah. to get Halloween-y. I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I've been like thinking about Halloween costumes, even though mm-hmm. we might be doing more Zoom Halloween this year. <gasps> oh my God. Okay. We have to do more Zoom Halloween, yes. I think, because I mean, obviously we are apart, but also it would be so fun to celebrate with the uh, monsters and stuff like that. So I think we should uh, do a Zoom party again for sure and All right. find some international friends. And I have an idea. I'm not sure whether I should put this on the episode or not, or if we should keep it under wraps. But um, I suggested a, a couple's costume to Louis that he was not interested in, but we should obviously do this if we can. Uh, let's um, please do a couple's costume. <laughs> <laughs> but it, so cult leaders, but like um, maybe 60s or 70s cult leaders. So we can have we can go all out with that kind of look, you know? Yes, I love that. Mm. And um, we're we're already halfway there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but just max it out, like just yes. do the really cheesy, like oh. stereotypical cult leader look of the hippie era, you Clearly know? Really super extra, probably oh, yeah. orange jumpsuits of some kind. <laughs> yes, definitely jumpsuits of yes. some kind. Oh my God, definitely. Yes. Definitely some sparkly things, maybe some, I don't know, crowns. Maybe Well, I don't know. We can still incorporate flower crowns, I guess. <laughs> we will definitely have braids Dress and in flower white. crowns. White flowy. <laughs> yes. We could be dead cult leaders. Yes. Ooh. <laughs> Ghosts. 
Christ cult leaders. Ooh, very spooky. I love that. But yeah, if you have better ideas, we want to hear them. Or like, tell us what you're being. If you're feeling spooky already and you want to talk about um, Halloween-y shit, we are so down. We yeah. need some of that. And if you have any ideas for what we could do as a group for our um, Zoom Halloween party, because I, I really do think that Things are going to be quite locked down this year. And yeah. even if by some miracle, they're not. Uh, I mean, let's still you do can join us internationally. That's the thing. I mean, I'm yeah. in Canada. Uh, you're in, who knows where you're at in, in Halloween. Where are you I at? I think I will be back in Budapest for Halloween, in Budapest. which um, is a very spooky city. Mm-hmm. Great. That's a perfect place to be then. Yes. <laughs> but then, yeah, we can welcome friends from wherever. Yes. So let's all hang out for Halloween. Let us know. Maybe we could cool. play some kind of game. I know with like a big group of people on Zoom, it can be super awkward. So like, let's find a way to make like a good flow and mm-hmm. have a good time. And maybe it's watching a movie together. Maybe it's watching Adam's Family or something. Yeah. Maybe it's having a having a spooky trivia or Ooh, some other spooky kinda... trivia. <laughs> that might be a winner. Would be fun. <laughs> I guess that's enough murder for one week, huh? Never enough. Never enough. Well, if you want some more, of course, you can always join us on the OG News, where we have the latest breaking true crime news articles every day of the week. You can find us on TikTok at Murder Murder News. Um, and also, if you really like our true crime history thing, we do have a pretty new segment that is This Day in True Crime Every Sunday. Um, so we've been finding some really interesting yes, stories on there. Um, we also have mm-hmm. Missing Person Monday, which is great because, you know, these families need answers for their missing person and you can help mm-hmm. spread the word around um, and maybe yeah. we can help somebody find peace or find their missing loved one. Yeah. And I got to say, our last couple of Missing Person Mondays were um, missing or possibly murdered Indigenous women, which is very important and uh, important to share. And then our last few um, or our last couple of This Day in True Crime histories were really fun too like you had um one uh that involved the manson family attacking sharon tate that's of course a very big point in history yeah the anniversary of that just passed Mm -hmm. and then when you were talking about the little girl who um played ducky in land before time that was murdered by her father i didn't know about that so like that's a super interesting one so definitely you want to follow us on tiktok to see that stuff there's so many cool stories Yes. And we are also on Instagram at Murder Murder News. We are on Facebook. If you look up Murder Murder News, you can also find our book club there in that group. Um, And our last one is Twitter, which is mm, Murder News. With all of the most delicious murders. Yeah. As I mentioned at the beginning, I won't go too heavy on you here, but just please find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash murder murder news and um, join us there. Thank you so much for joining us here this week. And we will see you again in one week on our next episode. And until then, um, have a great one, spooky pals. Bye, friends. Bye. That's it, folks. We hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Check out the show notes for details on where to find out more about today's feature and also about the Darkcast Network. In the meantime, where can the people find us, Beth? 
Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Oh, yes. And our phone number is 602-935-6294. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 